trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Welcome to WEHC 90.7, and you've just tuned in to She Walks with Carly Blaylock and Sharon Bowers, and we are so glad that you're with us again. We're in the new year, and so we're looking back as well as looking forward, and so we're still been talking about leadership and about specific change models, and so on our show today, we want you to join us in uh, the discussion when we're talking about Cotter's eight-step change model. And for most people, well, we'll talk, I want Carly to say hi first, and then we'll talk just a little bit about it. But let me just say, change is difficult. I'll just say that. Change is difficult. Carly? (laughs) Yes, it definitely is. Hi, everyone. Um, It's definitely difficult. And as we've, I think, demonstrated with exploring these different change models, there's so much theory around change. I mean, people who dedicate their entire lives to studying the theory of change, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about Cotter. John Cotter, it's 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 an old theory, but it is a go-to theory for any organization that sits down and decides that they want to do change. So maybe, Carly, I could read our uh, share our uh, eight steps, and then maybe we could just go look at each one of them individually and talk about it. What do you think about that? Yeah, sounds perfect. Okay, so listening audience, we'll be, we'll, I'll share them all once and then we're going to go back and talk about each one of them. So if you're taking notes or you want to ask some questions, it, you'll have time to hear it again. But this is Cotter's eight-step change model. And it's really just how he sees that you can systematically and effectively implement change in any organization. And so most people think if you do this, no matter what the organization, whether it's a for-profit, a nonprofit, whether it's an academic, educational environment, anything, if church, civic organization, anything like that, if you apply these principles, you will be able to effectuate positive change. So the steps are number one, create, a, and, and sometimes the words vary a little bit, but it's still the same. Number one is to create a sense of urgency. Number two, create a guiding coalition. Three, develop a vision and strategies. Four, communicate the change vision. Five, remove barriers to action. Six, accomplish short-term goals or short-term wins. Seven, build on the change. And eight, institute the change. So as you can see for for Cotter and for most people, most change models in either involve all of this or some of this. And so you can see it is a, a process. The the way that it's usually looked at is circular. And I think we talked one time, Carly, about the plan, do, check, act model. And uh, and it's kind of the same thing. After you've instituted the change, then you have to start back creating a sense of, of urgency. So let's start with uh, talking a little bit about creating a sense of urgency. Carly, when somebody says that, what's the first thing you think? Well, I think it's that goes back to what you were saying, right? Change is difficult. And so for people to want to change or to feel motivated to change, there does need to be that sense of urgency. There does need to be that sense that this is very, very important. And a lot of times, you know, I think that's what we experience with procrastination quite a bit, you know, is I'm not going to move until I really have to move, right? And so that it, that urgency piece is not just the motivation to change, but also now is the time. Yeah, and I think when we talked before, and, and of course, we're going to continue to talk about disruptive leadership, but when when the disruptive leadership change model, but when disruption happens, that that in and of itself creates that sense of urgency. You, you know, we talked earlier about George Floyd, 
And when that happened, I mean, people just took to the streets, black people, white people, Asian people, Native American people, the whole BIPOC range was, was there. I mean, everybody, white people, people just immediately said something's got to be done. We just cannot have these kinds of things happen. And of course, we know George Floyd was not the first person that was murdered within the police system. There have been many, many, many more. I was looking this this week back at, there's a wonderful documentary, Carly, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Who We Are in America. By, I think his name is Jeffrey Robinson. It's a Netflix. So if you have Netflix, you can get on there. But I mean, it was it blew me away. And so I think it was made in 2016. So the police brutality that he showed was, you know, what happened to Eric Garner. But anyway, a wonderful, wonderful documentary. What who we are in America, quote, uh, semicolon, something about racism. I don't know, but it, it it's it's uh, he has a whole project. This Jeffrey Robinson does, and he does a phenomenal job. He's a Yale graduate. Anyway, I know I'm off the subject, but I'm talking about things that create a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, we have to do something. I mean, that's the first thing that says that change must happen. Change must occur. And so things like racism, sexism, all the isms, capitalism, you know, uh, gender is all the isms create these sense of urgencies. And so one of the things that it's an old way of looking at it, but do you remember the SWAT, the strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats. Yeah. You remember that? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first things when people try to look at this urgency, that's one of the first tools that they use to try to say, you know, how urgent is this? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities? What are our threats to be different, to achieve some success? So and I was looking recently at the price of eggs. And so they, I was trying to figure out why a dozen eggs cost so much, you know? And uh, I went and I looked and some of the research they said was because there's a new bird flu that's killing all the chickens and uh, what one hen lays per year is per individual. So you could see how difficult it would be to meet the need for eggs. But I said all that to say that, uh, you know, sometimes our our situations drive us to do something different. I mean, what will we, what will we do in this situation when there's a crisis of eggs? What will we do? Will we just keep buying them? Or will we buy them for a while? Or what's the good about it? What's the bad about it? And if we even looked at the price of eggs and said, okay, how do we apply the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats on this whole egg situation? I mean, we would be able to, to look and see that. I mean, I think that's an urgency right now. America is saying there's all kinds of memes and things where people are saying, I'm out, I'm not eating eggs anymore. You know, I mean, just, just little things like that that affect our economy that affect us. And so that's all part of creating that sense of urgency, trying to figure out in, in and, and here's the other thing with that, creating that sense of urgency. It's sometimes difficult when you're in a hierarchical leadership, because if the person who is in charge, if the extra large in charge person does not see it as urgent, sometimes it is difficult to get that change started because they don't see you know they don't see there's a problem you're telling them there there's a problem other people are telling them a problem everywhere they go people are telling them there's a problem but if they don't see it as a problem it's not a problem absolutely yeah so the second thing that cotter says is to put together a guiding coalition and i think this is where you know bringing together competent people is important and and when i say competent i really do mean competent <laughs> 
Right. And I like that it's building a guiding team. I, I think those words are specifically chosen for those reasons, right? It's guiding because they're not expected to do all of the work, but they're going to guide the work, right? And it's a team of people. It's not one person that's creating this change. It's a team of people. And ideally, you know, as we've talked about on this show before, that team would include people who are the change agents, the people who have the power and the resources to make the changes, but also the people who do the work every day, who are on the ground floor making things happen so that we can get a broad range of perspectives. And our end user. I mean, we do that all the time, especially in academia. We make all these rules and do all these kinds of things. And we say we think this is best, never considering our students or the parents of those students who are paying for the students to be there mm-hmm. or getting loans for the students to be there. So, yeah, I think it's important for us to when we create these, uh, you know, these guiding teams, these coalitions of of competent people. I think it's important for us to to not just stop with, quote unquote, the the people. But one of the old total quality initiative kinds of things we used to talk always about the end user. And in that model, it was like, who is this about? Who's going to benefit from this or who is it for? Mm-hmm. And we need to hear from them. And and from an intersectional perspective for women and from an inter- intersectional feminist, Black feminist perspective, we often do not hear about the lived experience of people when we are creating these teams. And, and so the people who are talking about it are not the people who it affects the most. And so when we create these these uh, guiding coalitions, I think it's important for us to have everybody involved and and have multiple teams and and not not be afraid to to create teams to look at specific things. I think sometimes you know in our strategic planning, I won't say the wrong people, but not the best people at the table to talk about the things that are going on. And so consequently, you know, when we had our strategic plan, one of the things that I said here at the university was, where are our students? because how can we plan without having students because ultimately they are the we will either rise or fall from what our students think feel hope you know and do right so that's important i think carter's third thing are we on the third or the fourth the third third. the third i think uh the third thing is developing visions and strategies and I, i think in in change models and just in leadership models people spend a lot of time making up visions, goals, missions, all those kinds of things. But I don't think they necessarily have it plugged into a change model. I think they just say, hey, we need a vision. Hey, we need goals. Hey, we need objectives. But I don't think it's plugged in at all to a a change model. I think you're right. I think sometimes we go to the vision and the mission and the goals first and then do everything else second, which In most of the change models we've looked at, that's not been the case. Vision has been early in the process, but not necessarily the first thing, because I think you do have to have that that building team first, right? You have Mm -hmm. to have the team in place before you can really kind of get into what the vision is, because that team is going to contribute to what that vision looks like. And a vision is incredibly important, but you have to have that need and that team in place first to really guide that vision. Yeah. Whose vision is it anyway? Right. You know, and that's a question that I think we we always have to ask when we get to this point. And that's where we go back and say, hey, did we have the the guiding you know coalition? Did we have the right t- people at the table? Uh, do we really understand what really our strengths, our weaknesses, our threats, our opportunities are? Do we really understand what we're up against in trying to change, in trying to move forward? I think this, um, the 19th at, at our school, we're starting to look back at the women's issue. 
and the Women's Center. And so we've brought in an expert from Credo to start to look at the women's issue. And I mean, I'm hoping that my schedule will permit me to do it. But, you know, when you get a, a statement that says, this is the day the person is coming, you need to be here a whole day. Most people's schedules don't open up to that without some kind of like here are two or three days for consideration or give you time to rearrange your schedule, all those kinds of things. And so I, I, I'm saying all that to say, you know, it's important to have that team together and to hear from that team before you decide to do some of these things, especially like developing vision and strategies. There's one article we read, I don't remember who the person is, but it said, these were the things that they said that helped to set a clear and appealing vision. They said, align it with values central to the organization and the change initiative. I mean, how do we do that, Carly? I mean, just to align it, just to, I mean, I think we have to kind of know who we are first, and then know where we want to go so that that alignment comes and is congruent. But oftentimes we don't know. Sometimes we espouse things out of our mouth that we say we want to happen, but our heart really isn't in it. Right. And I think we can assume maybe that we're the whole team is on the same page when that is not always the case. And so we all kind of have different goals, ideas, visions in our heads. Right. And one thing that you do, Sharon, which I think is fantastic, is before we, in the times that we've been on teams together, before we even talk about our mission and vision and goals, you have us do the who, what, why, when, where, how, I think is what it is. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and that helps. That's so helpful because it allows us to know who we are and what we want to accomplish. And then we can kind of piece through that, see what we agree on, see what we don't agree on, or maybe could be worded different. And it really allows us to dig into that before we even try to craft a vision. Yeah, there's a, I don't know who the author is. I've, I've, so much of this I've forgotten, but he talks about, a preferred vision. And in the, in the, in religion, in the church, we talk about God's preferred uh, future. So the preferred future. So when we start talking about vision, I mean, what do we really want to see happen? I mean, what do we really, and I say it sometimes to people like this, what do you want to be when you grow up or when this organization grows up, what does it want to be known for? I mean, we have to be able to, to see that so that we can communicate it. And then I think it's Laura Beth Jones, who she wrote a book called, mm, I don't want to get this wrong, maybe Jesus and the CEO. But anyway, Laura Beth Jones is a leadership expert and she uses nature like fire, wind, earth, and I can't think what the other is to kind of describe what your leadership personality is. But one of the things that she always espouses is she says that your vision has to be short, sweet, easily understood by a 12-year-old, and you have to be able to recite it at gunpoint. And she makes the story of her uncle or somebody who was in World War II, where most people looked alike who were fighting, not all, but you know, uh, the enemy looked like many of the people that they were fighting. And so she said one of the things that, I think it's her uncle, said that they used to teach him is that when they came upon someone that they didn't know if they were foe or friend, they would ask them to state the vision. And they had to be able to state it at gunpoint mm. because if they could not state the vision, then they knew that that was the enemy and then their job was to destroy them. So I think about you know how, how when we talk about vision and sometimes we get so bogged down into the loftiness and the, the all the bigness of it that we can't simply explain it in five minutes. We can't explain it to like a 12 year old can easily understand it. We have these great big visions. And then the mission is worse because we apply so many things on the how that we don't get there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
you know, visioning, I think we talk about it all the time and we talk about it like we know what it means to, to vision something, but even, excuse me, after we know it, casting the vision is hard. Getting people to come along with you, getting people to see what you see, you know, what you all see as a team so that you can kind of carry it forth. And if you, if you can't cast that vision, you can have a leader who knows what they want and sees it as the best option. But if they can't get people to come along and to spread that out to all areas of their organization, then it's not a vision. It's an edit, you know, or, but it's not a vision. So visions are important. And then number four is communicating the vision. Now, Carly, I mean, you know, you, you're a consummate professional and you probably have vision after vision. I don't know if your specific, does your specific area that you work in, do they have a vision? Or are they going with the big vision? How's that work? We kind of support the big vision, <laughs> but we definitely have, we've talked about our own like vision, uh, mission statements, goals, and things like that. But I will say that communicating that is extremely important. And it also says in the chart that I'm looking at, communicate for buy-in, which is again, super important because that goes back to what you and I were talking about, like the vision needs to be something that everybody is on board with, not just something that they think they should be on board with, but something that everyone is actually on board with. Yeah. Cause people want, you can't force people to do something. Yeah. If they don't believe in it, they simply won't do it. They'll just take their toys and go back in their office or their cubicle and shut the door. And you can talk about it till the cows come home. It's not going to matter. So, and, and I think sometimes we don't spend enough time in that buy-in. We don't, it's like, for me, it's like this, Carly, and this is an analogy, but it's almost like when you go shopping and you try on clothes, you can go shopping and just buy something and take it home and it doesn't fit and it just stays in your closet forever because you're too lazy to take it back. Or you can go shopping and you can try it on and you can see if it fits. You can sit down on the little chair in the, in the dressing room. You can ask a colleague, how does it look? I mean, you can do all the things that you need to do before you purchase that garment and then you wear it out for the public to see. And so, you know, communicating that vision and the vision caster has to be able, I believe, to take people through that process. I mean, how how else can can you do that? How else can you communicate your vision without uh, without, you know, sharing it in such a way and then to also share it in such a way that it is alive, that it is not dead, but that it is alive and that it can be molded, that it can be shaped, that it can be tweaked that you could add to it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it's important that vision statements and mission statements are living things, right? That are added to or subtracted from as the vision and mission change, because that's normal, that's gonna happen. I also think this communication piece is super important to allow people to ask questions. Mm -hmm. So using this model, like you've built your guiding team, they've developed the, the vision, right? And then they're going to present that to a broader group of people. You know, you have to allow the space for those people to question and to ask those, you know, those guiding questions, right? Because you are going to have questions and you are going to be like, well, is this the best way to do this? Maybe there could be a different way. And that process is not always comfortable or easy. And it can be challenging, especially when you've like poured your heart and soul into this vision statement and then somebody picks it apart, right? That can mm -hmm. be really difficult. But I think that's such an important part of the process is to allow people the space to ask those questions. I think, and, and to take the feedback and to actually do something with it. 
yeah. not just give you time to rattle off and say, well, I heard you, but we're going on with this, but mm -hmm. to actually let that, those questions and that feedback shape what you are doing, which Carly goes back. If you look at this model from a circular perspective, it goes back to say how important it is to gather all those people in that guiding coalition so that you know, you've got enough variety, enough diversity, let's use some words that we use, enough diversity around the table so that by the time you get here, it's not a group think, but you have heard the voices of many people and especially the voices of the end user or the marginalized. So I think all that is critical in how we go about doing it. And so the next step is to remove the barriers to action. And boy, oh boy, is this sometimes challenging because you have to recognize the barriers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to recognize the barriers and then you also have to be willing to remove them because sometimes those barriers have been there for a very, very long time um, or they are there or were there for a reason maybe at one point, but that reason's not there anymore. And so, you know, whatever the case may be, it requires that kind of broad big picture thinking, that disruptive thinking that we've been mm -hmm. talking about, you know, making sure that people are able to do that. And I think too, that goes back to those change agents, right? Who has the resources to make the change and making sure that those people are not only included in the conversation, but that they're also listening to the feedback because they may not be aware of what some of those barriers are. The people that do it every day and that are like in, in it, working it, right? They are maybe more aware of what those barriers are. Yeah, there's a list of barriers. Uh, there's uh, insufficient processes. I mean, I think that is big. You know, we we don't want to look at our processes. We don't want to see, you know, we sometimes we look at people and we see that people are the the people who are impending progress. And trust me, there are some people who can impend pro, impede progress, but more often than not, it is the processes. How do we do this? What are the stumbling blocks? What's getting in our way? And then just the resistance to change that individuals bring. Uh, and it's not just always rank and file employees that resist this change. Sometimes it is the managers, the big people, the the people who uh, don't want to empower you or the people who don't uh, want to change because change doesn't have to always come top down. As a matter of fact, I think the best change sometimes comes bottom up when you're in a hierarchical kind of situation. And then I think you mentioned it earlier, but the policies and the structures and some of them that have been in place for a very long time. And some of them worked when they worked, but they no longer work. I mean, just think about in our own life, things that used to work, but no longer, it just doesn't meet the need any longer. And and uh, I think about that often with the telephone. And, and I think about, you know, I don't even know how we would live. You know, the person who said that we all would one day have computers in our hands. I don't remember who that was, but the person who said that, I, I mean, when we were using those big computers, nobody... I, nobody believed that. And of course you're young. You you've always had it, but 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 my sister and I were talking last night about even our first cell phones. I think I might have had a Blackberry or I don't remember what I had, but my first one, and she was talking about how you had to go push the series of alphabets to get what you want. So there's no predictable stuff on it. There was none of that. So we were talking about, you know, how how the phones have changed. And 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 so I'm just using that as a, a to say that the old structure of how a phone worked, it it worked, but it doesn't work now. It doesn't work for texting, a way that we communicate. It doesn't work for for a lot of things. So yeah, these these kinds of uh, uh, getting rid of these barriers are important. But one of the things, how do we how do how do you think we 
figure out what the barriers are? What What's our processes? How do we go about doing that? I mean, how would you go about doing it? I guess I should say. Yeah, I'm, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, number one is gathering data, right? Um, I think that's really important. And that also involves observation sometimes. So, you know, this is a period of time where we're not going to change anything. We're just going to kind of observe what's happening. And that can allow us to see, okay, now that we've intentionally observed this, we can see where things are maybe going wrong or what's not quite working. Um, and then gathering that data, whatever that data may look like for your organization or your company, you know, figuring out what data points you have to support that, right, to support the need for that change. And then ultimately, I know we've said this a lot, but listening to the people who are working in those positions day in, day out, they are going to be able to tell you their own lived experience, right? And the data should support that. But sometimes, depending on what you're doing, you may not have a lot of hard fast data, right? So it's really important to talk to the people who are working in those positions so that they could say, here's what works, here's what doesn't work. And here are some ideas I have about how it could be improved. Mm -hmm. And and just because you say something and you convey a message doesn't mean that it actually happens. I, I have to do a couple of MLK. This is, a, I guess this could be a commercial for Southwest Community College on the 16th. I'm their keynote speaker for uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, day. And then the next day I'm at uh, Virginia Highlands Community College doing the same thing. But um, so come if you can and you're interested. But so this week I've been as part of my devotional time, I've been listening to a Martin Luther King Jr. speech, hoping that something will ignite me. Uh, they have a theme, but, you know, a lot of our themes for MLK center around I have a dream. And so what I'm saying the long way with my commercial was you can have a dream, but it doesn't mean that it's ever going to manifest. Because here we are, you know, 60 years later, and the dream that he had, you know, has not manifested in, in big ways and maybe a little bit in small ways, but definitely not in big ways. So, you know, trying to see the barriers that are in place to keep that from happening. I mean, part of his dream was that, you know, one day little black boys and little black girl, you know, all that kind of stuff that we've heard over and over again. What are the barriers that's been keeping that from happening? Some of the barriers that have been keeping that from happening are institutional. Sure. Yeah. They're institutional. So, you know, trying to figure out how to uh, empower the right people or the best people to move the vision forward is critical because you can have a vision, you can have a dream, you can have all of that. But if you don't have ways to make that happen, if you don't have buy-in, if you don't have people who come along for this fantastic voyage, it's not going to happen. And we can see that in looking at, you know, what he said was a dream 60 years later. And some people have even opted to say that it might even be a nightmare, <laughs> you know, instead of a dream. But the sixth thing in Cotter's thing is to, I know we're going to run out of time, is accomplishing short-term wins. And, and I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot, uh, accomplishing short-term wins. And that kind of speaks to itself, just like celebrate whatever it is that you're trying to do when you get a little bit of it to go ahead and celebrate. And then build on the change is the 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 seventh thing. And I, I guess that's just keeping that momentum going. You know, how, how are we doing? We're doing well, celebrate. Yeah, let's keep doing it. How are we doing? We're doing well, celebrate. Yeah, let's keep doing it. You know, just, just keep going. And then ultimately... How do you make that change stick, Carly? And in some of the processes that you've been in, what are some of the tools that you all have used to, to make that change stick? How do, you, how do you make it work? So one of the big things is accountability, right? Mm. It's holding each other accountable and doing so from a place of like camaraderie. We're not calling anybody out, right? 
but we are um, holding each other accountable. And, you know, there are different ways to do that, you know, whether you might need a system in place where you all, you know, update your progress or whatever the case may be, depending on the change you're making. But holding each other accountable is really important. Um, I think if you've got a strong vision and everyone's bought into the vision, that's a lot easier, obviously, to get everybody kind of on board. But, you know, those accountability pieces, that's extremely important. Mm -hmm. And for me, I guess, in addition to accountability, it would be the training that goes with all of that. I mean, sometimes people don't do things because they simply don't know how. Right. Yeah. Sometimes people don't use the language because they've never been introduced to the vocabulary. I mean, and and so any of these change models, any of the thing that we do, there takes some training and some development that goes along with it and giving people an opportunity to buy in, not saying, you know, it's mandatory, you have to do this. But as you said, you can't hold people accountable for what they don't know. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I am sure we're out of time today. We are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been pulled on the carpet, listeners, to be on time because we we had one, we've had one 30-minute show that lasted an hour. So, <laughs> Carly, if you want to just uh, sign us off, that'll be yeah. great. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to us. We have some exciting things planned um, coming up in the near future um, where some feminists will be joining us to talk about their favorite feminists. And we're really excited to share that with you all, but we appreciate you all listening to our show. We hope you have a wonderful week and we will see you again next week. Bye everybody. Pass on the victory. We shall walk.